Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Simon Anthony and Torty Talks. Welcome to my readings of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. We got as far as so long and thanks for all the fish. And a poor person has walked out of a spacecraft and found himself abandoned by a road in heavy rain. A teaser, not a spacecraft, but a car, has uh, just not given him a lift. The figure trudged on. A Saab drew up to a halt beside him. Its window wound down and a friendly voice said, Have you come far? The figure turned toward it. He stopped and grasped the handle of the door. The figure, the car and its door handle were all on a planet called the Earth. A world whose entire entry in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy comprised the two words, mostly harmless. The man who wrote this entry was called Ford Prefect, and he was, at this precise moment, on a far-from-harmless world, sitting in a far-from-harmless bar, recklessly causing trouble. Chapter 4 already. Whether it was because he was drunk, ill or suicidally insane would not have been apparent to a casual observer, and indeed there were no casual observers in the old Pink Dog Bar on the lower south side of Handold City because it wasn't the sort of place you could afford to do things casually in if you wanted to stay alive. Any observers in the place would have been mean, hawk-like observers, heavily armed with painful throbbings in their head, which caused them to do crazy things when they observed things they didn't like. One of those nasty hushes had descended on the place, a sort of missile crisis sort of hush. Even the evil-looking bird, perched on a rod in the bar, had stopped screeching out the names and addresses of local contract killers, which was a service it provided for free. All eyes were on Ford Prefect. Some of them were on stalks. The particular way in which he was choosing to dice recklessly with death today was by trying to pay for a drinks bill the size of a small defence budget with an American Express card, which was not acceptable anywhere in the known universe. What are you worried about? he asked in a cheery kind of voice. The expiration date? Have you guys never heard of neo-relativity out here? There's a whole new area of physics which can take care of this sort of thing. Time dilation effects, temporal realistics. We are not worried about the expiration date, said the man to whom he addressed these remarks, who was a dangerous barman in a dangerous city. His voice was a low, soft purr, like the low, soft purr made by the opening of an ICBM silo. A hand like a side of meat tapped on the bar top, lightly denting it. Well, that's good then, said Ford, packing his satchel and preparing to leave. The tapping finger reached out and rested lightly on the shoulder of Ford Prefect. It prevented him from leaving. Although the finger was attached to a slab-like hand and the hand was attached to a club-like forearm, the forearm wasn't attached to anything at all. 
except in the metaphorical sense that it was attached by a fierce dog-like loyalty to the bar, which was its home. It had previously been more conventionally attached to the original owner of the bar, who on his deathbed had unexpectedly bequeathed it to medical science. Medical science had decided they didn't like the look of it and had bequeathed it right back to the old pink dog bar. The new barman didn't believe in the supernatural or poltergeist or anything kooky like that. He just knew a useful ally when he saw one. The hand sat on the bar. He took orders, it served drinks, it dealt murderously with people who behaved as if they wanted to be murdered. Von Prefect sat still. We were not worried about the expiration date, repeated the barman, satisfied that he now had Ford Prefect's full attention. We were worried about the entire piece of plastic. Once, said Ford, he seemed a little taken aback. This, said the barman, holding out the card as if it was a small fish whose soul had three weeks earlier winged its way to the land where fish are eternally blessed. We don't accept it. Ford wondered briefly whether to raise the fact that he didn't have any other means of payment on him, but decided for the moment to soldier on. The disembodied hand was now grasping his shoulder lightly, but firmly between its finger and thumb. But you don't understand, said Ford, his expression slowly ripening from a little taken abackness into rank incredulity. This is the American Express card. It is the finest way of settling bills known to man. Haven't you read their junk mail? The cheery quality of Ford's voice was beginning to grate on the barman's ears. It sounded like someone relentlessly playing the kazoo during one of the more sombre passages of a war requiem. One of the bones in Ford's shoulder began to grate against another one of the bones in his shoulder in a way which suggested that the hand had learnt the principles of pain from a highly skilled chiropractor. He hoped he could get this business settled before the hand started to grate one of the bones of his shoulder against any of the bones in different parts of his body. Luckily, the shoulder he was holding was not the one he had his satchel slung over. The barman slid the card back across the bar at Ford. We have never, he said with muted savagery, heard of this thing. This was hardly surprising. Ford had only acquired it through a serious computer error towards the end of the 15-year sojourn he had spent on the planet Earth. Exactly how serious the American Express Company had got to know very rapidly, and the increasingly strident and panic-stricken demands of its debt collection department were only silenced by the unexpected demolition of the entire planet by the Vogons to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. He had kept it ever since because he found it useful to carry, a form of currency that no one would accept. Credit, he said. Arrgh! These two words were usually coupled together in the old pink dog bar. I thought, gasped Ford, that this was meant to be a class establishment. He glanced around at the motley collection of thugs, pimps and record company executives that skulked on the edges of the dim pools of light, with which the dark shadows of the bar's inner recesses were pitted. They were all very deliberately looking in any direction but his now, carefully picking up the threads of their former conversations about murders, drug rings and music publishing deals. They knew what would happen now and didn't want to watch in case he put them off their drinks. You're gonna die, boy, the barman murmured quietly at Ford Prefect, and the evidence was on his side. 
The bar used to have one of those signs hanging out that said, please don't ask for credit as a punch in the mouth often offends. But in the interest of strict accuracy, this was altered to, please don't ask for credit because having your throat torn out by a savage bird while a disembodied hand smashes your head against the bar often offends. However, this made an unreadable mess of the notice and anyway didn't have the same ring to it. So it was taken down again. It was felt that the story would get about of its own accord. And it had. And Libby, look at the bill again, said Ford. He picked it up and studied it thoughtfully under the malevolent gaze of the barman and the equally malevolent gaze of the bird, which was currently gouging great furrows in the bar top with its talons. It was a rather lengthy piece of paper. At the bottom of it was a number which looked like one of those serial numbers you find on the underside of stereo sets, which always takes so long to copy onto the registration form. He had, after all, been in the bar all day. He'd been drinking a lot of stuff with bubbles in it, and he had bought an awful lot of rounds for all the pimps, thugs, and record executives who suddenly couldn't remember who he was. He cleared his throat rather quietly and patted his pockets. There was, as he knew, nothing in them. He rested his left hand lightly but firmly on the half-open flap of his satchel. The disembodied hand renewed its pressure on his right shoulder. You see, said the barman, and his face seemed to wobble evilly in front of Ford's. I have a reputation to think of. You see that, don't you? This is it, thought Ford. There was nothing else for it. He had obeyed the rules. He had made a bona fide attempt to pay his bill. It had been rejected. He was now in danger of his life. Well, he said quietly, if it's your reputation. With a sudden flash of speed, he opened his satchel and slapped down on top of the bar top his copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the official card, which said that he was a field researcher for the guide and absolutely not allowed to do what he was doing now. What's a write-up? The barman's face stopped in mid-wobble. The bird's talons stopped in mid-furrow. The hands slowly released its grip. That, said the barman, in a barely audible whisper from between dry lips, will do nicely, sir. Chapter 5 The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a powerful organ. Indeed, its influence is so prodigious that strict rules have had to be drawn up by its editorial staff to prevent its misuse. So none of its field researchers are allowed to accept any kind of services, discounts or preferential treatment of any kind in return for editorial favours. Unless, A, they have made a bona fide attempt to pay for a service in the normal way, B, their lives would otherwise be in danger, C, they really want to. Since invoking the third rule always involved giving the editor a cut, Ford always preferred to muck about with the first two. He stepped out along the street, walking briskly. The air was stifling, but he liked it because it was stifling city air, full of exciting, unpleasant smells, dangerous music and the sound of warring police tribes. He carried his satchel with an easy swaying motion so that he could get a good swing at anybody who tried to take it from him without asking. It contained everything he owned, which at the moment wasn't much. 
A limousine careered down the streets, dodging between the piles of burning garbage and frightening an old pack animal which lurched, screeching out of its way, stumbled against the window of the herbal remedies shop, set off a wailing alarm, blundered off down the street and then pretended to fall down the steps of a small pasta restaurant where it knew it would get photographed and fed. Ford was walking north. He thought he'd probably be on his way up to the spaceport, but he had thought that before. He knew he was going through that part of the city where people's plans often changed quite abruptly. Do you want to have a good time? said a voice from a doorway. As far as I can tell, said Ford, I'm having one, thanks. Are you rich? said another. This made Ford laugh. He turned and opened his arm in a wide gesture. Do I look rich? he said. Dunno, said the girl. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you'll get rich. I have a very special service for rich people. Oh, yes, said Ford, intrigued but careful. And what is that? I tell him it's okay to be rich. Gunfire erupted from a window high above them, but it was only a bass player getting shot for playing the wrong riff notes three times in a row, and bass players are to a penny in Handold City. Ford stopped and peered into the dark doorway. You what? he said. The girl laughed and stepped forward a little out of the shadow. She was tall and had that kind of self-possessed shyness, which is a great trick if you can do it. It's my big number, she said. I have a master's degree in social economics. It can be very convincing. People love it, especially in this city. Goosenog, said Lord Prefect. It was a special Beetlejuicean word he'd use when he knew he should say something but didn't know what it should be. He sat on a step, took from his satchel a bottle of that old jank spirit and a towel. He opened the bottle and wiped the top of it off with a towel, which had the opposite effect to the one intended, in that the old jank spirit instantly killed off millions of the germs which had been slowly building up quite a complex and enlightened civilization on smellier patches of the towel. Want some? he said, after he'd had a speak himself. She shrugged and took the proffered bottle. They sat for a while, peacefully listening to the clamour of burglar alarms in the next block. As it happens, I'm out a lot of money, said Ford. See if I get hold of it. Can I come and see you then, maybe? Sure, I'll be here, said the girl. So how much is a lot? Fifteen years back pay. Four? Writing two words. So, Quan, said the girl. Which one took the time? The first one. Once I got that, the second one just came one afternoon after lunch. A huge electronic drum kit hurled through the window high above them and smashed itself into bits in the street in front of them. It soon became apparent that some of the burglar alarms on the next block had been deliberately set off by one police drive in order to lay ambush for the other. Cars with screaming sirens converged on the area only to find themselves being picked off by copters which came thudding through the air between the city's mountainous tower blocks. In fact, said Ford, having to now shout above the din, it wasn't quite like that. I wrote an awful lot, but they just cut it down. He took his copy of the guide back out of his satchel. Then the planet got demolished, he shouted. Really worthwhile job, eh? He's still going to pay me, though. You work for that thing? The girl yelled back. Yeah, good number. You want to see the stuff I wrote? He shouted, before it gets erased. The new revisions are due to be released tonight over the net. 
Someone must have found out that the planet I spent 15 years on has been demolished by now. They missed it on the last few revisions, but it can't escape their notice forever. It's getting impossible to talk, isn't it? What? She shrugged and pointed upwards. There was a copter above them now, which seemed to be involved in a side skirmish with the band upstairs. Smoke was billowing from the building. The sound engineer was hanging out of the window by his fingertips, and a maddened guitarist was beating on his fingers with a burning guitar. The helicopter was firing at all of them. Can we move? They wandered down the street, away from the noise. They ran into a street theatre group, which, trying to do a short play for them about the problems of the inner city, but then gave up and disappeared into the small restaurant, most recently patronised by the pack animal. All the time, Ford was poking at the interface panel of the guide. They ducked into an alleyway. Ford squatted on a garbage can while information began to flood over the screen of the guide. He located his entry. Earth, mostly harmless. Almost immediately, the screen became a mass of system messages. Here it comes, he said. Please wait, said the messages. Entries are being updated over the sub ethernet. The entry is being revised. The system will be down for ten seconds. The end of the alley, a steel grey limousine crawled past. Hey, look, said the girl. If you get paid, let me up. I'm a working girl and there are people over there who need me. I've got to go. She brushed aside Ford's half-articulated protests and left him sitting dejectedly on his garbage can, preparing to watch a large swathe of his working life being swept away electronically into the ether. Out in the street, things had calmed down a little. The police battle had moved off to other sectors of the city. The few surviving members of the rock band had agreed to recognise their musical differences and pursue solo careers, the street theatre group were re-emerging from the pastel restaurant with a pack animal, telling it they would take it to a bar they knew where they could be treated with a little respect, and a little way further on, the steel grey limousine was parked silently by the curbside. The girl hurried towards it. Behind her in the darkness of the alley, a green flickering glow was bathing Ford Prefect's face, and his eyes were slowly widening in astonishment. For where he had expected to find nothing, an erased, closed-off entry, there was instead a continuous stream of data text, diagrams, figures and images, moving descriptions of surf on Australian beaches, yoghurt on Greek islands, restaurants to avoid in Los Angeles, currency deals to avoid in Istanbul, weather to avoid in London, bars to go everywhere, pages and pages of it, it was all there, Everything he had written. With a deepening frown of blank incomprehension, he went backwards and forwards through it, stopping here and there at various entries. Tips for aliens in New York. Land anywhere, Central Park, anywhere, no one will care or indeed even notice. Surviving. Get a job as a cab driver immediately. A cab driver's job is to drive people anywhere they want to go in big yellow machines called taxis. Don't worry if you don't know how the machine works and you can't speak the language, don't understand the geography or indeed the basic physics of the area, and have large green antennae growing out of your head. Believe me, this is the best way of staying inconspicuous. If your body is really weird, try showing it to people in the streets for money. 
amphibious life forms from any world, from any of the worlds of the Sphingnoxios or Narsalia systems, will particularly enjoy the East River, which is said to be richer in those lovely life-giving nutrients than the finest and most virulent laboratory slime yet achieved. Having fun. This is the big section. It is impossible to have more fun without electrocuting your pleasure centers. Ford flipped the switch, which he saw was now marked Mode Execute Ready instead of the now old-fashioned Access Standby, which had so long ago replaced the appalling Stone Aged Off. This was a planet which he had seen completely destroyed, seen with his own two eyes, or rather blinded as he had been by the hellish disruption of air and light, felt with his own two feet as the ground had started to pound at him like a hammer, bucking, roaring, gripped by tidal waves of energy pouring out of the loathsome yellow Vogon ships. And then, at last, five seconds after the moment he had determined as being his last possible moment had already passed, the gently swinging nausea of dematerialization as he and Arthur Dent had been beamed up through the atmosphere like a sports broadcast. There was no mistake. There couldn't have been. The Earth had definitely been destroyed. Definitely, definitely boiled away into space. And yet here, he activated the guide again, was his own entry on how he would set about having a good time in Bournemouth, Dorset, England, which, as he had always prided himself as being one of the most baroque pieces of invention he had ever delivered. He read it again and shook his head in sheer wonder. Suddenly he realised what the answer to the problem was, and it was this that something very weird was happening. And if something very weird was happening, he thought he wanted it to be happening to him. He stashed the guide back in his satchel and hurried out of the street again. Walking north, he again passed a steel grey limousine parked up by the curbside, and from a nearby doorway he heard a soft voice saying, it's okay, honey. It's really okay. You've got to learn to feel good about it. Look at the way the whole economy is structured. Ford grinned, detoured around the next block, which was now in flames, found a police helicopter which was standing unattended in the street, broke into it, strapped himself in, crossed his fingers and sent it hurtling inexpertly into the sky. He weaved terrifyingly up through the canyoned walls of the city and, once clear of them, hurtled through the black and red pall of smoke which hung permanently above it. Ten minutes later, with all the copter's sirens blaring and its rapid-fire cannons blasting at random into the clouds, Fort Prefect brought it careering down among the gantries and landing lights at Handold Spacefort, where it settled like a gigantic, startled and very noisy gnat. Since he hadn't damaged it too much, he was able to trade it in for the first-class ticket on the next ship leaving the system, and settled into one of its huge, voluptuous, body-hugging seats. This was going to be fun, he thought to himself, as the ship blinked silently across the insane distances of deep space, and the cabin service got into its full extravagant swing. Yes, please, he said to the cabin attendants, whenever they glided up to him to offer him anything at all. He smiled with a curious kind of manic joy as he flipped again through the mysterious reinstalled entry on the planet Earth. He had a major piece of unfinished business that he would now be able to attend to and was terribly pleased that life had suddenly furnished him with a serious goal to achieve. 
it suddenly occurred to him to wonder where Arthur Dent was, and if he knew. Arthur Dent was 1,437 light-years away, in a sob and anxious. Behind him in the back seat was a girl who had made him crack his head on the door as he climbed in. He didn't know if it was just because she was the first female of his own species that he had laid his eyes on in years, or what it was, but he felt stupefied with, uh, with... This is absurd, he told himself. Calm down, he told himself. You are not, he continued to himself, in the firmest internal voice he could muster, in a fit and rational state. You have just hitchhiked over a hundred thousand light years across the galaxy. You are very tired, little confused, and extremely vulnerable. Relax, don't panic, concentrate on breathing deeply. He twisted round in his seat. Are you sure she's all right? Beyond the fact that she was, to him, heart-thumpingly beautiful, he could make out very little how tall she was, how old she was, the exact shading of her hair, and nor could he ask her anything about herself, because, sadly, she was completely unconscious. "'She's just drugged,' said her brother, struggling, not moving his eyes from the road ahead. "'And that's all right, is it?' said Arthur in alarm. "'Suits me,' he said. "'Ah,' oh, said Arthur. "'Ah!' Uh, he added after a moment's thought. The conversation so far had been going astoundingly badly. After an initial flurry of opening hellos, he and Russell, the wonderful girl's brother's name was Russell, a name which to others' mind always suggested burly men with blonde moustaches and blow-drying hair, who would at the slightest provocation start wearing velvet tuxedos and frilly shirt fronts and would have to be forcibly restrained from commenting on snooker matches, had quickly discovered that they didn't like each other at all. Russell was a burly man. He had a blonde moustache. His hair was fine and blow-dried. To be fair on him, although Arthur didn't see any necessity for this beyond the sheer mental exercise of it, he, Arthur, was looking pretty grim himself. A man can't cross a hundred thousand light-years, mostly in other people's baggage compartments, without beginning to fray a little. And Arthur had frayed a lot. "'She's not a junkie,' said Russell suddenly, as if he clearly thought that someone else in the car might be. "'She's under sedation.' "'But that's terrible,' said Arthur, twisting round to look at her again. She seemed to stir slightly, and the head slipped sideways on her shoulder. Her dark hair fell across her face, obscuring it. "'What's the matter with her? Is she ill?' "'No,' said Russell. "'Merely barking mad.' What? said Arthur, horrified. Loopy, completely bananas. I'm taking her back to the hospital until he to have another go. They let her out while she still thought she was a hedgehog. A hedgehog? Russell hooted his horn fiercely at the car that came round the corner towards them halfway on their side of the road, making them swerve. The anger seemed to make him feel better. Well, maybe not a hedgehog, he said after he'd settled down again, though it would probably be simpler to deal with if she did. If somebody thinks they're a hedgehog, presumably you just give them a mirror and a few pictures of hedgehogs, tell them to sort it out for themselves. Come down again when they feel better. At least medical science could deal with that. That's the point. Seems that's not good enough for Fenny, though. Fenny? You know what I got up for Christmas? Well, no. Black's Medical Dictionary. Nice present. Oh, I thought so. Thousands of diseases in it, all in alphabetical order. You say her name is Fenny? 
Yeah, take your pick. I said, anything in there can be dealt with. Uh, the proper drugs can be prescribed, but no, she has to have something different just to make life difficult. <laughs> she was just like that at school, you know. Was she? She was. Fell over playing hockey and broke a bone nobody had ever heard of. I can see how that would be irritating, said Arthur doubtfully. He was rather disappointed to discover her name was Fanny. It is a rather silly, dispiriting name, such as an unlovely maiden art might vote herself if she couldn't sustain the name Fenella properly. Not that I wasn't sympathetic, continued Russell, but it did get a bit irritating. She was limping for months. He slowed down. This is your turning, isn't it? Ah, uh, no, said Arthur. Five miles further on, if that's all right. Okay, said Russell, after a very tiny pause to indicate that it wasn't, and sped up again. It was, in fact, Arthur's turning, but he couldn't leave without finding out something more about this girl. He seemed to have taken such a grip on his mind without even waking up. He could take either of the next two turnings. They led back to the village that had been his home, though what he would find there he hesitated to imagine. Familiar landmarks had been flitting by, ghost-like, in the dark, giving rise to the shudders that only very normal things can create when seen when the mind is unprepared for them and in an unfamiliar light. By his own personal time scale, so far as he could estimate it, living as he had been under the alien rotations of distant suns, it was eight years since he had left, but what time had passed here he could hardly guess. Indeed, what events had passed were beyond his exhausted comprehension, because this planet, his home, should not be here. Eight years ago, at lunchtime, this planet had been demolished, utterly destroyed by the huge yellow Vogon ships, which had hung in the lunchtime sky as if the law of gravity was no more than a local regulation, and breaking it no more than a parking offence. Delusions, said Russell. What? said Arthur, started out of his train of thought. She says she suffers some strange delusions that she's living in the real world. It's no good telling her she is living in the real world because she just says that's why delusions are so strange. Don't know about you, but I find that kind of conversation particularly exhausting. Give her the tablets and piss off for a beer is my answer. I mean, you can only muck about so much, can't you? That was one in a series of Torty Talks by Simon Anthony acting at torty.org.uk